I grew up in a Buddhist household, um, but it wasn't like part of our daily practice. It was only when we visited Japan that we would go to temples and practice the religion. I was first introduced to Christianity during my first year of college. It was mainly um, through one of my good friends, Natsumi. She introduced me to the gospel, and I just remember reading about God's unconditional love, Him just asking us to come before Him just as we are. I understood that this was not through our own works um, that we could receive salvation, but just receiving this gift that God really um, puts at the heart of everyone. I didn't actually tell my parents that I had accepted Christ until the weekend before Easter. I was believing that it was in my power to be able to share with my parents, but that's not true at all. I should have been asking God to help me guide that conversation, and my mom was really encouraged by it, and she really wanted to come see me get baptized. So I was like, okay, this is happening this weekend. One of the main reasons why I wanted to get baptized was that it was the next step of obedience for me. God calls us to proclaim our faith um, in front of the members of our church. My sister was the first person I shared the gospel with. This last week, we actually got to sit down and read the Bible together and we read the first few verses of John and I just saw God like really softening her heart and her being more and more curious to learn more. So I'm just really excited to see what where God really takes this relationship. I'm just surprised that I became Natsumi's one and how God like chose to place her in my life to do that. I never had expected that she would share the gospel with me or anything, but Natsumi really encouraged me to grow throughout the summer with City Project and potentially help co-lead or lead a D group next year, which I think would be a cool way to illustrate um, God's call for us to continue making disciples. I don't know about you, but I never get tired of hearing stories like that one. Um, I think it is amazing what God is doing here among the college students of our church. The vision of our college ministry is the same as every different uh, ministry of our church, and that is to make disciples who make disciples. We don't consider you a fully functioning disciple of Jesus until you are reproducing yourself, your walk of faith, and the life of somebody else. And so by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the grace of God, uh, we are seeing God move in that part of our church and in many others, and I never um, hope that you get tired of seeing God work these kind of miracles among us. Amen? Amen. All right, if you got your Bible this morning at all of our campuses, if you'll take it out and open it to the Gospel of Matthew, Gospel of Matthew chapter 13 to be specific, today we are going to begin a series on the parables of Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew. So if you find the Gospel of Matthew one time, then for the next several weeks, you can just open right there because we'll be there every single week for the next several weeks to come. The name of the series is called Listen. 
Listening, of course, is a critical life skill. One of our campus pastors told me this week that he, um, not too long ago, was working at home in his yard uh, when he got a phone call from his wife who told him that she was at the mall at a store that he had never heard of called West Elm. She told him that she wanted to buy a credenza that cost $1,400 and asked him if there was any way in their budget they could afford that. He said, first of all, I had no idea what a credenza was. I thought it must be a cooking book. That's what it sounded like to me. Second, I was working in the yard and not paying much attention. So I heard 40 to $100. So I said, sure, buy the cookbook. Frankly, I was surprised how grateful she was. She just kept saying over and over, thank you, thank you, thank you for the life of me. I couldn't imagine what was so exciting about a cookbook, but I was glad she was glad. A few days later, when West Elm delivered our credenza, I said, wow, you got this for $40 to $100? And she said, no, $1,400. My jaw hit the floor, and I was distraught, and now I need a welfare check. Uh, so listening is a critical life skill. Uh, you know that, not just in marriage, but in every um, facet of your life. And whenever Jesus would tell the parables that he tells in the book of Matthew, quite often you will see that he uses the word listen. Listening, of course, is different than hearing. Hearing just means it enters into your ears and you translate it into your brain. Listening means you are hearing it with your heart. Today, we're going to look at a parable that Jesus told about why he told parables. It's a parable about parables, which I know sounds like a biblical version of inception, a parable within a parable about parables to interpret parables. But this one is absolutely fascinating. You see, I was always taught when I grew up that um, parables were just earthly stories that had a heavenly meaning, where Jesus would use simple everyday analogies to help people understand profound truth. Uh, it's kind of like today when we say, you know, it's like you've seen in that movie, or you remember that scene from The Office, had Nicolas Cage been around in Jesus's day, he would undoubtedly have featured frequently in Jesus's teaching. That's all true. They are very earthy ways of making profound truth accessible. But this parable is going to show you that they're actually actually was more to Jesus's parables than simply trying to take profound truth and put it on the bottom shelf. In fact, in a twist of irony, Jesus is going to explain to us in this parable that sometimes he told parables not to illustrate truth, but to obscure truth. And I know that sounds confusing to you, but I honestly believe that today is going to answer some questions that many of you have had for a long time, and you've not known how to ask them. In fact, you've been embarrassed to ask them and felt like it was the kind of thing you couldn't ask in church. It's going to explain to you why some people, even though they are really, really smart, just can't seem to grasp the truth. And you're like, I don't understand because I feel like it's plain in front of me and I'm, I'm trying to explain it to you, but they don't seem to be able to get it. Or why so many people interpret the Bible in such vastly different ways. I'm also going to explain today why some of you have such a hard time paying attention in sermons. And why some of you, the very moment that I stand up here to preach, start to get drowsy. Yes, I see you. I've got a good vantage point on most of you right here. I know it. I see it. I'm going to explain why a bunch of you middle and high school students suddenly have to use the bathroom the moment I start speaking. Uh, from my vantage point up here, it's like watching a parade um, out there sometimes. Um, by the time I'm finished today, I think I will have convinced you that having to use the bathroom while I am preaching is a sign of demon possession. And so... <laughs> If somebody gets up during the sermon to go to the bathroom, then you should just probably cross yourself or hiss at them uh, when they go by, okay? I'm just kidding. Don't do that. But I am going to explain to you why a lot of the different spiritual forces that are happening when I am up here, or say anybody is up here with the Word of God open, okay? All right, Matthew 13, let's look at the parable itself. 
Verse 1, let's set the context. On that day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat down while the whole crowd stood on the shore. Uh, basically, Jesus uh, got in a boat and pushed himself back from the, um, the shore a little bit so that he could have a place to preach from. This is the first century version of an overflow lobby or a satellite campus. Uh, by the way, I've tried to convince our elders that they should buy me a boat so that I could be prepared for this if it ever happens. They keep telling me that's not a valid application of this text, but I keep telling them they're just hard-hearted because clearly that's what Jesus needed here in this moment. We should be prepared. Verse 3, then he told them many things in parables. And here was the first parable that he gave to them, the parable about parables. Consider the sower that went out to sow. As he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured those seeds. Uh, the seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil, and it grew up quickly since the soil wasn't deep. Verse 6, but when the sun came up, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Uh, the seed fell among thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it. Still other seed fell on good ground and produced fruit, some a hundred and some 60 and some 30 times what was sown. Let anyone who has ears to hear, everybody say it together. Listen, listen. If you have ears to hear, listen. Then the disciples came up to him and said, why are you speaking to them in parables? You see, evidently a bunch of the people listening to Jesus were confused which by the way, might be good news for a bunch of you who get confused when I'm up here speaking. It doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. You probably would have made a pretty good disciple of Jesus. They were confused also. So just Jesus' disciples are like, Jesus, Jesus, why don't you just come out and tell us what you mean? I'm going to suggest to you today that you have probably asked this exact same question at some point. You may not have known that you were asking it, but you have asked why at some point. If Jesus is true, if Jesus is really true, why wasn't he more straightforward? and definitive about it? Why did he leave any room for doubt about who he was? That question comes out of our mouths in questions like, God, if you really are the author of the Bible, why not just prove that to everybody, right? I mean, why not make it where every time you open the Bible, a little angel hovers above the Bible and just says, this is true, this is true. Uh, you know, why not make it where you open the Bible and you look at the thing and it's like one of those magic eye pictures where a figure skater comes out who does a you know, dance that somehow symbolizes your life's journey. Why not make that happen? Uh, why not make it that whenever your professor um, begins to deny the truth of the Bible, that all of a sudden a, a Darth Vader chokehold comes on him, right? I mean, that would prove that this is God's word, right? I mean, you ever ask things like that? Why doesn't God make it more plain? You know, some Bible critics even use Jesus's lack of straightforwardness to try to suggest that Jesus didn't really believe he was God, that that was something that later Christians added to him, that Jesus was unaware of that. Uh, Bart Ehrman, for example, over at UNC, he points out that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus doesn't seem to aggressively put forward his deity. In other words, he doesn't come out that often and just say, I'm God. Now, in the Gospel of John, Jesus does that, and what that shows, Dr. Ehrman says, is that that was something John invented later. The earliest Christians, he says, didn't believe it. John came up with it later, and John convinced everybody else they should go along with it. Uh, Dr. Ehrman says, if Jesus really was God after all, surely he would have talked about it more directly. I, he would have come out of Mary's womb, you know, having solved a Rubik's Cube and, uh, you know, working on a physics problem and said, good morning, everyone, I'm God, watch me levitate or something like that. But see, that's the question that's being asked here. Jesus, if you really are who you say you are, and if all this stuff matters as much as you say that it does, why weren't you more straightforward and definitive in your claims? Why leave any room for doubt or confusion? Again, I would say you probably had that same question. Jesus' answer to that question is as follows. Verse 11, he answered, because the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you 
for you to know, but it has not been given to them. Here's number one, if you're taking notes, it's because insight into truth is a gift of the Holy Spirit. That means no matter how smart you are, you cannot understand the gospel without the help and the grace of God. When Peter made his famous confession, um, when Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds with, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus did not say gold star for you, Peter. The reason you figured that out is because you're so smart and you pay attention all the time. No, what was his response? He said, flesh and blood has not revealed it to you. In other words, your brain, your brain did not figure that out. My father in heaven revealed that to you. Paul would say it this way in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, the exact same thing. No man can say that Jesus is Lord. No man can say that Jesus is Lord from his heart except by the illumination and the help and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. You see, sin makes our hearts so naturally dull and slanted against God and so biased against his authority and glory that we cannot see spiritual truth. We can't see it without his help. I've described it like this before. You ever meet somebody who is so jaded or biased against somebody or some group of people that they just can't see an issue clearly? They so dislike a group of people that they twist anything and everything that that person or that group does so that it's bad. I mean, we see it all the time in politics, right? Democrats think that everything that Republicans do is, is stupid and, and reveals the wicked, evil intentions of their hearts and vice versa. Uh, Republicans think that about Democrats. Or, or, or think about it in reverse. Do you ever see somebody so biased by love that they can't see legitimate faults in somebody even when they're there? Hank Murphy, who is one of our worship pastors, so loves LeBron James that no matter what LeBron James does, Hank will see it through a positive lens. If LeBron has a low scoring game, then Hank will say, you know, that just shows how unselfish he is that he let all the other players on his team score. If LeBron goes 0-15 from the field, Hank will say, only a player of such elite confidence would keep shooting after he missed 14 shots in a row. If LeBron punches another player in the face, Hank will say, well, man, he's just got such passion for the game, and I admire that, and touch is obviously his love language, and I just, I really respect that. I'm telling you, if you ever encounter Hank Murphy out in the community somewhere and you want an hour of entertainment, just sidle up to him and say, I think Stephen Curry is a better all-around player than LeBron James, and then cancel your plans for the rest of the afternoon because you will be entertained. Well, see, our sinful hearts are like that, but in reverse. Our sinful hearts are so biased and jaded against the authority and the glory of God that we can be blind to evidence even when it's right there in front of us. Listen, it is a miracle of regeneration. It is a miracle of regeneration for anybody to see the truth about Jesus. So honestly, stop congratulating yourself for coming to see the truth about him. It was not your intelligence. It was not your righteousness that led you to understanding. It was a gift of his grace that you didn't deserve and couldn't work up on your own, which is why Ephesians 2.8 says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith and not even that is of yourself. Even the faith to believe was a gift of God. It was not of work. So stop your silly boasting because it has no basis whatsoever. And what that means is when you find somebody who is not convinced of the truth like you, right? Don't talk down to them and don't think of them and talk to them like they're an idiot. Pray to God that he will extend to them the same understanding that he did to you. That's the first reason he spoke in parables because ultimately it's a gift of the Holy Spirit. Here's verse 12, gives us the second reason Jesus was not always straightforward, which goes hand in hand with the first, verse 30 or verse 12. For whoever has, more will be given to him and he will have more than enough. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Now, 
In context here, he's talking about insight into truth. And what he means is that if you obey the insight into truth that God gives you, then God will give you more insight into truth. But if you don't obey that, God will take even what you have away. That is why he says, I speak to them in parables. Because looking, they do not see. And hearing, they do not listen or understand, which is a reference to a statement by the prophet Isaiah. And Jesus goes on to quote that in the next few verses. And he reveals to us the second reason that he spoke in parables. Number two, insight into truth is as much a matter of the heart as it is of the head. It is the condition of our hearts, Jesus says, not a lack of clarity in the evidence that keeps us from seeing the truth. The same sun, the same sun that hardens the clay softens the wax. The difference in effect has nothing to do with exposure to the sun. It has to do with the material upon which the sun shines. So Jesus is explaining that he obscured truth so that only those who were of the right disposition of heart could actually see it. I I skimmed through my Bible this week and and compiled a, a list of reasons that keep us from seeing the truth that scripture identifies that God says have nothing to do with your intellectual capacity. I'll give you a handful of them. This isn't all of them, but it's a handful of them. Um, letter A, number one, is an unwillingness to change. Just an unwillingness to change. Hey, look, look at what Jesus said, John 7, 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. You know what that means? Is that means submission to God is a prerequisite for understanding or having knowledge of God. A lot of times we come in and we're like, God, if you reveal this to me, then I'll consider whether or not I I follow this. And God says, you will never know me that way. You have to be submitted to to, to me, be willing to follow truth wherever it leads in order for me to reveal the first thing to you. That's the reason some of you aren't, are seeking and not finding. Here's letter B, it's similar. Cherishing sin in our hearts. King David, Psalm 66, 18, if I cherished sin in my heart, then the Lord would not have heard me no matter how earnestly I prayed. Some of you are seeking God, but you have unconfessed, cherished sin in your heart, and that's why you can't see. Jesus would say in Matthew 5, verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart. The pure in heart, they're the ones that are going to see God. Here's a third one, letter C, apathy. Apathy. The prophet Jeremiah, when you search for me, you will find me. Searching for him implies that he's hidden, right? You'll find me though. If you seek me with all your heart, I will let you find me. It reminds me of when I'm playing hide and seek with my kids and I find a great hiding spot they don't know about and they'll never find me no matter how long they look. I'll start to give little clues because I don't want to be down there for three hours. Um, and I'll just, you know, kind of rattle around. That's what God is promising he'll do. You can, he's so hidden, you can't find him, but he'll let you find him. He'll let you find him, says the Lord, if you seek him with all your heart and all your soul. Some people never see simply because they don't give this question the weight and the urgency it deserves. I think here of college students I talk to sometimes who say, well, yeah, I'm not sure if there's a God and, and maybe I'll think about that one day, but right now I'm just enjoying life too much to really give this, this question a second thought. Uh, or uh, Pastor Curtis was telling me this week about a guy that he shared Christ with a number of times who he said always listens politely and asks some good questions, but he just doesn't take it that seriously. Uh, he said, in fact, Curtis said, he said, he always says to me, uh, hey man, there's no shot clock on this decision. I got my whole life to figure this out. What God is saying here is you will never find God under those conditions. There has got to be a sense of how weighty and urgent this is for God to reveal it to you. I mean, just think about it with me for a minute. If it's possibly true that your creator God came to earth and was humiliated and tortured and died for you, then for you to treat the possibility of that with just a passing glance is an insult to God. No wonder he won't reveal it to you. 
It requires a level of, of urgency and to seek him with all your heart and soul. Here's another one, letter D, hating other people. You say, well, this is a strange one, but look at it. First John 4, 20. How can he who does not love his brother whom he has seen love God whom he has not seen? Hating other people clouds our ability to see God when we hate other people who are made in the image of God. You see, God, follow this. God just doesn't want to be known. God wants to be loved. He wants to be loved. And if your heart is filled with hate and bigotry so that you're just gonna use your knowledge of God as a weapon against other people, then God will keep you from your, the knowledge of him because he doesn't want you to know him and not love him. And the love of your heart is revealed by how you feel about the people around you and whether or not you're a bigot or a racist or you're hateful or you're jealous. The condition of your heart is revealed in how you love others. And that's the kind of heart that God reveals himself to is a heart that loves. Here's, here's one more, letter E, giving other people's opinions more weight than God's. How can you believe, Jesus asked in John 5, since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. But what Jesus is saying here is that you can't perceive truth. You can't believe when other people's opinions matter more to you than God's opinions. Hey, here's what I thought about this week when I was going through that. I, I, I thought of the, the high school student that I sometimes see who goes off to college and stops believing in God, right? And, but here's what I know about them. When they were in high school and they did believe in God, other people's opinions mattered a whole lot more to them than the God that they believed in. So it's no wonder that when they went to college, they lost the knowledge of God because God said, the reason you lost the knowledge of me is because when you did believe in me, other people's opinions mattered more to you. That word weight, I've told you in, uh, in Hebrew, what Jesus would have been using probably to speak there, chabod means, um, the word glory means weight. It means a weightiness. How much weight do you give other people's opinions or, or God's opinions? When somebody does this, it usually means that their unbelief is not a matter of their head, it's a matter of their heart. It was their heart that was wrong that made their head go wrong. An idolatrous heart almost always will lead to an unbelieving head. Tim Keller, one of my favorite pastors, he says that when, when, when somebody that's young comes to him and says they don't believe in God anymore, he said, my first, if they grew up in church, he says, my first question is, who, you start, who did you start sleeping with? He said it almost always knocks him off guard. He says, but 99 times out of 100, there's an answer to that question. And it was ultimately this heart away from God that led to the doubt that plagued their mind. Maybe that's been happening to you. You see my point in all this? I'll say it again. Insight into truth is as much a matter of the heart as it is of the head. So Jesus sometimes spoke in parables so that those with a heart to know God could see the truth and everybody else with the wrong kind of heart would be confused. Paul would say the exact same thing another way in 2 Corinthians 2. We are, he says, the pleasing aroma of Christ to those who are being saved. And to those who are perishing, we are the stench of death. Talk about a distinction. One smell, to some it's a pleasing aroma of death, and to others, or a pleasing aroma of life, to others it's a stench of death. Here's what I thought about this week when I was going over that verse. How many of you at all of our campuses know what durian is? How many of you know? Put your hand up. Just testify for a minute. Okay. Durian is... I have a picture of it right here. It's sort of like a mutated pineapple looking thing. Um, it, it looks pretty harmless right here, but I'm telling you, if I were to open up a durian in this place, it would clear out this entire room. 
Not only could you smell it in the farthest corners of this room, our Alamance County campus could smell this thing. Um, when you go into Singapore, Southeast Asia, where I was, they will have like in front of the malls and hotels, they'll, like we have pictures of no smoking, a cigarette with a line through it. They'll have pictures of durian with a, with a line through it because it smells so bad. All the Indonesians would tell me, oh, it is the greatest fruit. It is awesome. And I, I mean, I, the first time I was around one, I, I literally I had a gag. Uh, because it was, I mean, it smelled, this is the best way I can describe it. I'm not trying to be gross, but it smells like um, Captain Crunch and armpit. If you could mix those two things together, that's what durian smells like. And they would be like, oh no, no, it is so good. And I'm like, I don't even get it close to me. Um, so after I've been there about a year, the strangest thing started to happen. I cannot explain it medically. I cannot explain it scientifically. I have no idea how it happened, but it ceased to be that repulsive. And then after another couple months, it actually started to smell good. And then somebody convinced me to try it and I started, I actually liked it. And I started, and then it became like my favorite fruit of all time. I mean, it is, I, if I opened up a durian here, a bunch of you would want to gag and there's a handful of us that would think that smells awesome. Durian is like the gospel, okay? Because the gospel is this thing that there are certain people that it, it repulses them. And there are others to whom it has become the aroma of life, the same scent of durian makes one person want to vomit, makes one person crave something. Um, that is what is happening with the gospel and the condition of your heart determines which one of those reactions that the gospel will produce in you. The same sun that hardens the clay softens the wax. The difference is not in the sun that shines on it. The difference is in the material on, upon which it shines upon. That's the whole point Jesus is making with this parable. The condition of your heart is more important than the intelligence of your head which by the way is good news for some of you, amen? Because maybe you're not that smart, but you can submit your heart to God and God will show you the truth. So listen to Jesus explain, listen to him unpack the specifics of the parable. He's gonna interpret this one for us, which he doesn't always do. So this is a special treat. Verse 18, so listen to the parable of the sower. You see, when anyone hears the word about the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed that is sown along the path. We're going to look at four different types of soil really quickly that just illustrate the big truth that we just unpacked. Here's the first kind of soil. We're going to call it the hard heart. The hard heart. This is the person who is interested in what the Word of God says, just not that much. And so they leave here, and almost immediately after they leave, Satan, like a bird, like a bird, snatches away the Word snatches away the ideas that they were having, snatches away their thoughts by planting doubts in their minds, or maybe he just distracts them with something else. By the way, not necessarily a bad thing. It's not a bad thing he uses to distract you, just something that takes your mind off of what God says. Some of you, that's going to be your experience today. You're sitting here right now in our church thinking, oh, this is really interesting. I've never really thought about this before. This is speaking to me. And you're sincere in that thought. But as soon as we dismiss, you're going to start thinking about where you're going to go eat. And that's going to be the end of it. Others of you are going to sit here and think, man, I so wish so-and-so were here to hear this. And that concern for them is good. But the problem is that thought is from your enemy. And he is using that distraction to get you to stop thinking about what the word of God is saying to you. Put on your own oxygen mask before you try to help somebody else. Distraction sends more people to hell than doubt ever has because Satan will do anything to get your mind off of what the word of God is saying to you. So when Moses gave the word of God to the children of Israel, he says, this is not a curiosity. This is your life. It is your life. It is a matter of life and death. Don't be 
distracted by your enemy. Here is verse 20, the second thing. I'm the one sown on rocky ground. This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. But he has no root and is short-lived. When distress or persecution comes because of the word, well, then immediately he falls away. Let's call number two the shallow heart. The shallow heart. This is the person who hears the message, is initially moved by it. But whatever decision they make, a lot of times it's an emotional decision. A lot of times it's a sincere decision. It just doesn't last that long. And that's because the root doesn't go very deep. And the slightest difficulty, the slightest challenge in obedience, the slightest persecution is going to make that wither away. I used to see this all the time graphically illustrated when I used to speak at a lot of student camps in the summer. I still do one or two weeks a summer, but I used to do it a lot more. And I would always see it. There's a certain logic, by the way, you know, to how you do youth camp, a little formula. Basically, you keep the kids up all night, every night until you get to Thursday. Then they're emotionally spent. They're worn out. They're, you know, just kind of hanging on by a thread. Then you play an extra long music set. Then I get up and tell some emotional story and give an invitation and the whole camp gets saved. That's how it works. And I would watch it from up, you know, here. And I would see like, um, I would, you know, like a row of teenagers. And, and I would watch one in the end would, you know, kind of start crying. And then you could, it's just like a disease. Boop, 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 boop. It goes all the way down and they're all crying. And then they all come up together. They huddle up, they cry, they weep. They blow snot sickles on each other. They vow to be missionaries. They're not gonna date till they're 35, just the whole bit. Right, and that really sincere commitment to Jesus, which felt sincere in the moment, it lasts for about an hour and a half until the emotion wears off because they were never really into Jesus. They were just into this emotion and the slightest challenge and difficulty, the slightest challenge and difficulty showed that the root didn't go that deep. You see, a lot of people, a lot of you respond to an emotional moment and that's great. You should respond. It calls for emotion. But the point is, 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 is your trust in Jesus so deep in your heart that you'll go through whatever it takes to be able to possess him? What's often confusing about these people is that they look so convincing when they make the decision because they look so sincere and the tears flow down their face. In, in, a, in a book I wrote a few years ago called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart, I tell a story um, uh, in there of a guy um, that I shared Christ with a few years ago. Um, that would go into this category just sort of in a slightly different way. It was, um, it was at the gym that I was working out at. Uh, at the time, the gym I was working out had, a, had a, um, a basketball court. So just him and I out there. And so we started playing one-on-one together. Um, now, and he sort of painted a picture uh, of this guy to you. He, um, uh, he was about my age. Uh, he had hair down to his lower back back here. Tattooed every square of his, of his body was tattooed that I could see. Not a, not a, I don't even know what his skin color was. It was just, you know, everything was tattooed. Um, then there was, uh, it, it, everything was pierced on him. Looked like he'd fallen face first in a tackle box. Um, and uh, nothing wrong, by the way, with any of that. Okay, I'm just painting you a picture. Um, he cussed every other word, just threw in gratuitous curse words for, I don't know why, just like salt and pepper on his meal. They didn't even make any sense. Uh, the point is, I'm painting you a picture of a guy that is not the kind of guy that you would think is regular in a church. So I start sharing my testimony with him because that's what you're supposed to do. Um, I get about three lines into my testimony. He grabs the ball, puts it on his hip, and he says, dude, are you trying to witness to me? Now, I was shocked he knew the word witness because that's insider language, right? I was like, maybe. And he said, um, he said that's fantastic. He says, man, nobody has, nobody has shared Christ with me in years. And he said, he said, but man, let me tell you, you're wasting your breath. He said, because um, he said, uh, I grew up in church. Uh, he said, I, I got saved at youth camp. 
I was like, was I the speaker? And he said, um, uh, he said I got saved in youth camp. And he goes, man, I, I just didn't get saved. I got really saved. He goes, I came home from student camp and I was like Jesus champion. I started a Bible study at my school. I led other kids to Christ. I went on mission trips. I memorized verses. I was a president in my youth group. He said, I got into high school and he said, then it started to kind of fade away a little bit. I started to lose interest. He said, then I went to college and I just quit believing in God altogether. He said, I'll be honest. I started to sleep with people and I really liked, you know, the way he described it, I really liked sex. And so I just decided I'd put my belief in God on hold for a while. And then I just came to the point that I didn't believe. He said, he said, but here, here, here's what's awesome um, about this. He said, uh, I was saved in a Baptist church. He says, no, you're, you're a Baptist, right? <laughs> and I was like, can you just look at me and tell? Is it like, something that I give off? I mean, I know shirt tucked in today makes me look like that, but, um, but my shirt wasn't untucked there. But, uh, you know, it was like, I was like, how do you know? He said, well, I just, I, I know who you are. And he said, um, he said, so he said, in a Baptist church, he said, we believe once saved, always saved, Right. And he, I was like, no comment. He said, um, he said, because what that means is even if you're right, even if Jesus really is the way, the truth, and the life, I got saved. He goes, so even the fact that I don't believe in God, he said, that doesn't matter because once saved, always saved. And so even if you're right, I'm secure in heaven. Now, some at church, how do you respond to that person? Right? I mean, like I, I had lots of seminary classes. None of them ever prepared me for that moment there. What I ended up talking about with him was this parable of the seeds. Because what you've got is somebody whose faith springs up quickly. And it looks so convincing at the beginning. But one of the signs of saving faith is not its intensity at the beginning. That can be misleading. The sign of saving faith is its endurance to the end. And there are some of you who started so well. And it was so sincere and it was so explosive. But you're no longer walking with Jesus. And that means that whatever decision you made back 3, 4, 10, 20 years ago was the wrong one. Because one of the signs of saving faith is that it goes deep enough that it lasts your entire life. Now, I know what some of you are asking right here. You're like, well, wait a minute. Can't you backslide? Yes, you can. All right, King David. Uh, you know, King David committed adultery with his best friend's wife, had his best friend murdered, and lied about it for a year. That's varsity-level backsliding. King David was a Christian. But see, the point there is God still brought David back. Eventually, you can't wander, but so far before God brings you back, there are some of you that are revealing that you never really became Christians. You were just a shallow soil because you sprang up quickly and then you faded away. Uh, the way I say it and stop asking Jesus into your heart is this. It's true, once saved, always saved. It's true that once Jesus grabs hold of your heart, he's never going to let you go. But it's also true that once saved, forever following. It means that once Jesus has really transformed you and once he's saved you, Yes, you'll fall into sin from time to time, but he will always bring you back because the proof of saving faith is not intensity at the beginning. It is enduring to the end. Okay? Here's our third kind of soil, verse 22. Now the one sown among the thorns. This is the one who hears the word, but the worries of this age and the deceitfulness of wealth choke out the word, and the word becomes unfruitful. So let's write down number three, the divided heart. This is the person, Jesus says, who hears the word, he hears the word, he responds to it sincerely, he wants to follow it, but other things begin to choke it out. Specifically, he says, the worries of this age, the cares of the world, and the deceitfulness of wealth. You say, what does that mean exactly? Well, let's unpack that. Here's what it looks like. It means for some of you, you're genuinely interested in what I'm saying up here. You would love to be a, for God to be a part of your life. God would even, you would even say it's important to you. But as soon as you get out of here, what's going to consume your mind are the bills that you have to pay, which are important. 
but you're going to get consumed with the deceitfulness of riches, the, the pursuit of wealth and more, or what other people are thinking about you. So the point is you don't deny God's word. It just takes a back seat in your life. Or you like being here in church and hearing the word of God. You like your family hearing the word of God. But you know what? Your kids got travel soccer. And your kids got dance. And so you just can't really afford to come that much. You come every once in a while and you wish you could come more. But, but the cares of the world, oh, those things are a little more important than the word of God. Or how about this one? You got, a, you got that new lake house or beach house. And man, you just love your weekends there. You just love, and, and God wants you to enjoy nature, right? So, so you'd rather... You'd rather devote yourself there than devote yourself to hearing the word of God. There's nothing wrong with any of these things I'm talking about, right? So don't hear me say that. What I'm saying is for some of you, it just reveals a priority you place on the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and not on the hearing of the word of God. And that's going to reveal itself in how the word dies in your life. For many high school students here, they're listening this weekend. And they're saying, they're sitting there saying, yeah, this is important. And I want God to be a part of my life. But the moment that you leave here, maybe even while I'm talking, you're kind of looking down at your phone and you're checking that text message stream and who's saying what or Snapchat or whatever. And you're going to be more consumed about those things, not bad things, but those things that choke out the word of God in your life. Some of you are not going to follow through on obedience because of the cares of the world. It's just too inconvenient for you to get involved in ministry or to go all the way or go on mission or tell people about Jesus. You won't obey God with your first fruits. You won't give him your first and your best and, and tithe because there's so much other stuff that you want to afford that you can't afford yet. So you got to hold on to your money. And it's never, it's just not a conscious decision that you make to reject God. It's just that God's word gets crowded out in your life by other good things. Distraction sends more people to hell than doubt ever has. And by the way, this is not just for those of you who, this is for me. For the, I'm going to tell you, just for those you are not Christian, for me, I, I thought this week about how many times God will speak something to my heart. And I, I, I'm sincere. I'm like, yes, I need to. And then immediately almost, as soon as I get up I, out of my chair and stop reading the Bible, I'll, I'll just get consumed with what everybody's saying about me or what I want to afford or, or how much money that I, you know, I, I need for this or that. When God speaks to you, you have to obey definitively and clearly, and it has to get not just a top place in your life, but the unchallenged first place, period, or it won't grow in you at all. Here's the last soil, number four here. Then there's the kind that's sown on the good ground. This is the one who hears and understands the word, who does produce fruit and yields some 100, some 60, and some 30 times what was sown. Let's call this one number four, the open heart. The thing that I want to focus on here with the open heart is how fruitful the seed is when it goes in. You see, agriculturalists, farmers, scholars tell us that in those days at least, the average yield of a seed was about eight times, eight times. So when Jesus says 160, even 30, he is talking about something that is nothing short of miraculous, something that people look, I mean, when the farmers that Jesus was talking to would have heard this, they would have been like, whoa, 30, 60, 100 times? That's divine. It's talking about a yield in your life of fruit that other people can notice and recognize there's something at work in you that is not of you, that it is something that God is doing in you. It starts to show up in how you treat people. It shows up in your generosity of spirit. It shows up in how quickly you forgive. It reveals itself in your excitement for worship and how you tell other people about Jesus. It is miraculous. Other people see there is something that is happening in you. And what Jesus is saying is, if there's not that miraculous evidence, it's probably because Jesus isn't really there. Y'all listen, God's word is powerful. 
It was one of God's words that created the entire universe as we know it. One word created all this. When God's word comes into your heart, it will make a change. In fact, in a few verses, Jesus is going to tell another parable. And in this parable, he's going to compare it to an acorn, little acorns you crush under your feet and destroy. But when that acorn gets planted, it grows up into an oak tree that is larger than you can imagine. In fact, um, let me, I found this picture. This is not an oak tree, but you've seen this before, right? I mean, here you got a tree that's roots can split a sidewalk that you could never do in your own strength. Yet that started with a little tiny seed that you could crush under your foot. And Jesus said, that's what the word of God is like. It looks insignificant. You can even ignore it. You can get up and go to the bathroom and it's being taught. You can just totally blow it off. But that word comes into your heart. And if it takes root, it will grow in your heart into something that will split addiction. It will split depression. It will break through your unbelief and it will produce in you a harvest of righteousness. If Jesus's word has taken root in you, See, if his word is taken root in you, we will be able to see it. Now, hear me. I'm not trying to get you to compare yourself to the best Christian you know and say, well, you must not be saved because you're not like them. In fact, it's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus says 160 and 30, because here you got people who only have 30-fold you know, increase, and they're looking at people with 100, and they're like, well, what's wrong with me? Uh, it doesn't mean that they're not really saved. It just means that God you know, grows it at different rates in people's lives. I don't want you comparing yourself to other people. What I do want you to do is I want you to be able to say, yes, God's word has a powerful effect on me and it's showing up in how I treat people. It's showing up in every possible way in my life. By the way, Summit Church, reading about the power of the word always gets me excited about sharing it with others. I, I can't go through this without just being like, I just wanna preach all the time and I wanna tell people about this work because I, I love watching the word go to work in people's lives. I love watching that acorn split the cement and slabs of depression and addiction and a pride and apathy. I know a story, I told some of you this uh, last week, one of the services, but I didn't hear about it till the end of the weekend, which is why I didn't tell everybody. Um, there was uh, uh, somebody who came the week before Easter here, um, a, a girl who came that was invited by somebody she hadn't been in church in a long time and came in and that was the week we were talking about the cross and she said it just, she got, I don't know what it did to me, but it just overwhelmed me and opened my eyes. And so I came back to the Good Friday service by myself, just showed up there. Then I came back, uh, you know, the next day for the first Easter service, four o'clock at Briar Creek. I showed up there. Then I stuck around for the 530 service, just sat through that service too. Then I came back the next day and went to the, the services that day. Then I went home and watched the service, you know, three or four times online and then showed up at starting point. Uh, which is, you know, kind of the first step we have inviting people in, showed up and said, I think I, I'm ready to get saved. Well, my mom and dad happened to be the table host of that table. And they're like, we think you already are saved. Uh, we'll just kind of commemorate that right here because obviously God has gotten a hold of you. That's the word of God in, in, in somebody's life. Or I think about the story I heard um, about one of our students who came to Christ here last year, only Christian in his family, starts praying for his family, for his mom and dad to come to faith in Christ on Easter Sunday brings his dad, they walk the aisle together and he baptizes his dad at one of our campuses. That is the multiplying power of the word of God. And I don't see how you can't want that to be reproduced in the life of everybody you know. And I can't help but think about neighborhoods and nations all over the world where we wanna see the word of God go to work. Don't we want to be moved to see this multiply in every highway and hedge in the Raleigh-Durham area? And don't we yearn to see it happening in the, the, the places all over the world where we send our people to go and see the word of God multiply? So let me just ask you to consider, which soil, which soil are you? 
I've given you a number of different ones. Let's, let's turn it back here first. Are you the kind that's just been easily distracted? You got good intentions, but there's just so many other things that crowd out your focus on the word, or maybe you're the kind that you would like to obey, but you'll be honest this weekend that the cares of the world and the cares of what other people say, it's choking it out in your life. Maybe, maybe you're finally ready to really receive the word of God and let it have the place in your heart that it should have. And maybe you today need to draw a line in the sand, so to speak, where you say, today things change. And God and his word are gonna get the place in my life that they deserve. Let let me raise the stakes for you just a little bit. The seed, the seed that we keep talking about, what is the seed? We say, it's the word of God, yes. But it's more than just the printed word of God. Jesus would call himself the seed. He was the seed, he said, that went into the soil and died so that he could produce in us a harvest of righteousness. And what that means is that you are hearing a message about your father, God, who died for you, who was tortured and executed and died for you. You can't treat that with a passing glance. It demands a decision. And for you just to get up out of here and go think about what you're gonna eat after this, that is in itself a decision. It is an insult to God that says, it's just not that important. It is time for some of you to look Jesus Christ in the face and acknowledge what he did for you and respond in the way that he deserves for you to respond to him. My question is, are you ready to respond like that? Because of the nature of this message and because it's so clear, I wanna do something unusual. That's how I want us to end today. We don't do this all the time. It's not totally unique to us, but we don't do it every week. I wanna give you a chance to draw a line in the sand because I think, I believe just in praying leading up to this message that this is going to be a definitive moment for many of you. And I'm gonna invite our prayer counselors. In fact, let me get them right now. Just come at all of our campuses. Come and I want you to stand right down front here. We're gonna have prayer counselors at every campus. And I'm gonna invite you to respond. I'm gonna give you three different groups I wanna talk to and that who I want to respond while our, our, our counselors are coming. Um, here's the three groups. Number one, some of you need to be saved. You've heard the word of God, you've been interested in it, but you've never received Jesus for yourself. You've never let your heart be the kind of soil that would go all the way with him. And today, I want you just to step out in a minute. I'm gonna tell you exactly when, and you're gonna walk forward and take one of these hands of one of these counselors, and you're gonna say, I'm ready. I am ready to give God the rightful place he deserves in my life. I'm ready to receive him. That's group number one. Group number two, there's some of you who are already Christians, but you recognize that the Word of God has a secondary or tertiary place in your life. And today, the Holy Spirit is speaking in your heart. You know He's speaking, and He's saying, I want things to change. I got fathers and mothers listening to me that you need to come together and say the Word of God has had a second or third place in our family's life, and that's going to change today. Now you say, I know you're saying this. You're like, well, do we need to walk forward to make that decision? No, you don't. You can make it right there where you are, but I've done this long enough to know that for many of you, simply doing that, stepping out and coming out and praying with somebody will make a definitive line in the sand that will alter the direction of your family. Some important, some decisions are so important, you need to kind of formalize them. And that's what I'm giving you a chance to do, to come down and pray with one of our counselors and say, God, help us to make things different. And I'm telling you, if you obey that impulse in the Holy Spirit, the eternities of your children are gonna be different because you did that. It's important, and if the Holy Spirit is drawing you and moving in your heart, don't resist Him and don't say, well, I don't want to do that. You come down and you say, God, I wanna, I, I, I'm ready for this. Here's the third. 
Some of you right now, God has put in your heart somebody for you to pray for, somebody that you've been putting the Word of God in, and your heart is just breaking right now because you want to see that Word go 30, 60, and 100-fold. And I'm going to invite you just to come down and grab the hands of one of our counselors and just pray with them and say, would you covenant with me to pray for this person that they will hear and they will believe? Now, we've got a few down at every campus. You say, well, what if I come and nobody's there? We'll have other people come up. There are people are good at that. They'll know what to do. So you just come down. And uh, in the church I grew up in, we had an altar. We don't really have great altars at our campuses anymore, but we're going to turn this into a kind of altar where we just end this time listening to the Holy Spirit and, and asking for His help and making these decisions, okay? Uh, we don't know why you're coming, but it, it will be probably in one of these three categories, and I want you to obey the impulses of the Holy Spirit. You got it? You got it? Why don't everybody stand to your feet at all of our campuses? Everybody stand. Let me pray, and then I want you to do business with the Holy Spirit. And you come if the Holy Spirit's put in your heart to come for one of those three reasons. You ready? Father, I pray, I pray in Jesus' name that you would give us the faith not to hear the word and have it snatched out of our heart and our hands. I pray for teenagers that are gonna walk forward to one of our campuses and say, today, God's word is gonna have its rightful place in my heart. I pray for fathers and mothers who are going to covenant that the word is going to have the central place in their family's life. I pray for those, God. I pray with those who are coming to pray for somebody else whose their heart is broken for. I pray. I pray for those who need to be saved. Give them all courage to, to, to come in these moments. I pray in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As our worship teams come at all of our campuses, I want you to obey the movements of the Holy Spirit. Just step out right now and just begin to make your way down here. And let's turn this into an altar, a tabernacle of prayer. And you obey the Holy Spirit of the next few moments as our worship team comes.